Okay, so we have a new episode of Legends and, and Leaders, and today we have Stephen here. Stephen's the editor at large at Wired, um, one of my favorite tech publications to to read. I've been a reader, you know, since since I was a kid. Um, oh, you've been looking at your work for some time for sure. Um, you've authored many different books in the Plex, which was the bestseller in 2011. Um, you've really kind of predicted also crypto before crypto even became big, rediscovered Einstein's brain. I mean, there's so many incredible things that you've done, Stephen. So I'm excited again to your story. Appreciate you coming on. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be on the show. Awesome. So how did your passion for technology and journalism start? Did you like receive some sort of a tech device and you kind of got interested in them? Like, how did this all begin? So I was uh, a general interest journalist uh, for a number of years. Uh, I went to grad school in literature and decided that academia wasn't for me and went back to my hometown, Philadelphia, and started writing, taught myself how to be a magazine writer. And I was into it for a few years uh, when I got an assignment to write about these people called computer hackers. And this is in 1981. And uh, I really hadn't heard of these people. Uh, it wasn't a popular term then. They were, back then, we used the term it referred to people who were uh, computer addicts. It wasn't really a nice thing to say about people. It, you know, it implied that they were like these losers that couldn't participate in society. Um, but I looked into it and started... Um, uh, working on a story for Rolling Stone about them. This with you, I uh, took the assignment, and I was just blown away by the whole world of computers, digital technology, and the people who really got it and who did amazing things with computers. So I thought, uh, gee, I want to do more and more about that. You know, right? I went to California to research it, and just when I got back, I said to my girlfriend, who's now my wife, "We've got to get." computers you know uh we bought some a pair of apple twos and we learned word processing which is what you did back then right so now you kind of have a little bit of insight into what these people are all you know excited about like what were some of the next steps in terms of in terms of like you determining what you even wanted to write about in the space and and how, where you even wanted to, to to what topics to focus on like how did you figure that out so it was a really interesting time this is the early 80s uh, personal computers are just becoming, I wouldn't even say popular, but uh, becoming something that some people were adopting. And uh, businesses started to look into them and some people started to buy them. Uh, so there was a hunger to learn about those. And I was in a great position of someone who had established myself to some degree as a writer that communicated with general interest audiences. And uh, whereas most people in what was known as computer journalism at that time, not only the thing they called the journalists, were sort of from the hobbyist world. So the, the thing was shifting there. So there was a hunger for people to learn about what these things were about, as well as to learn the stories of the people who were creating them. And I was really well placed to do that and got to know a lot of the really important people in that world very early on as a representative of places like Rolling Stone or Esquire or you know, the places I was writing for. And I also started writing for a computer magazine called Popular Computing at the time. So uh, and then I got a request to write a book about hackers. And that really huh. took me deep into the rabbit hole. I really um, looked into the origins of computer culture and came out with this book in 1984 called Hackers, 
which is still uh, pretty popular, pretty widely read within that world. Mm -hmm. Based on what you your research of the space, you know, around 1984, when you put out the hackers book, I mean, how much has changed currently in the tech space in terms of like the way things are made and created and, and the people behind them, um, then then how much has changed in the culture, etc.? I mean, massive changes. You know, it was very much an outsider culture when I was writing about it. Uh, and most people didn't understand what these folks in Silicon Valley or Seattle or other places were doing. Um, they were just trying to figure out how to, how to use these things. You had to type yeah. in weird codes in order to get it going. Um, and then you would print it out on these uh, dot matrix printers that just printed a little constellation of dots uh, I remember when I wrote Hackers and handed it to the publisher, my publisher would not accept the dot matrix printer that I had. They, you know, they, they said, this doesn't look like a real manuscript. So I had to rent uh, what was known as a daisy wheel printer, which uh, created what looked like a typewritten copy. And it took it was very slow. It took a whole weekend to print out the book. Uh, so uh, you had to de decode it. So lots of things were different back then. And uh, just the beginnings of these companies that were beginning to go public, like uh, Apple and Microsoft, which went public in 1977, I believe, uh, maybe 1978, uh, they were just starting to become legitimate concerns. And back then also, uh, hackers was wrestling with the idea of whether you could really be a hacker and make a lot of money doing it. It was sort of at odds because it sort of violated uh, some ethical you know, uh, principles that some people had that, gee, this is sort of holy. And, you know, I really can't be doing it to, to make a lot of money. Uh, one thing that we've gotten past now is, yes, you could be a hacker and make lots and lots and lots of money. You could be a billionaire and you could still be a hacker. Uh, so I think think that's changed. But what hasn't changed is really great in that wizardry on the computer and coding is still very highly valued. Doing amazing things with digital technology is still what drives that world and now our world. So uh, while it's become really a mainstream, if not the mainstream pursuit, uh, some of the magic is still there. Mm -hmm. So how did your relationship with Apple start? And like, how did you get involved in reviewing their products so early on? I mean, you were, I think, one of the first four people to review the iPhone. How did that all begin? Yeah, well, I mean, it was involved with Apple way before that. Uh, when I started writing about it, you know, Apple was the company which was most aligned with the element of the computer revolution that had been tied to the counterculture where I came of age, you know, I went to college in the late 60s, uh, early 70s. Um, it was very much part of that revolution and music and culture of the whole bit. Um, so uh, Apple had that flair to it. So I was interested in them from the start. I remember uh, hanging around there. And uh, of course, Steve Wozniak was a very big source for hackers. So I got into the company that way, learning about the people. Um, I remember I was the one first person at Rolling Stone to learn about this big rock festival that Steve Wozniak was sponsoring called the Us Festival. It was the biggest festival in the United States since Woodstock. 
um, and told them about it, wound up covering that uh, for Rolling Stone. So I, I knew a lot about it and looked for very much uh, a lot of interest when they were developing the Macintosh uh, and actually wrote the story about the Macintosh launch for Rolling Stone. I got in before it launched and that's where I really met Steve Jobs. And, and that was in late 83 for a story that came out in early 1984 uh, when the Macintosh launched. So, uh, and I uh, wrote a column beginning in 1985 for Macworld. So I was like super familiar with the company and a lot of its products way before the iPhone in 2007, which uh, I reviewed for Newsweek. Um, when Steve Jobs came back to Apple in 1997, I was at Newsweek then, I was the main technology writer. And Steve knew who I was and was happy that I was at a place where he wanted to be. He only took a few publications seriously and Newsweek was one of them. So uh, when he began to talk about what he was doing at Apple, he called me to Cupertino. That was when the iMac was coming out and I spent a few days with him. And during my whole time at Newsweek, uh, we were very close. And every time Apple would come out with something new, he'd summon me and I'd get an advanced look or at the least I'd go to his uh, keynote and meet him afterwards and he'd give me a personal showing. <laughs> you know, when looking at a product like the Macintosh, did you think that this was going to really transform computing right away or did you think it would have like some sort of, of influence on it, but you know, it would take some time. Like what were kind of your initial thoughts there? Well, you could read the article. I was on the record saying this is a big deal and it's going to change computers forever. And, you know, I was talking about the graphical user interface, bit mapping on the screen, the mouse, um, you know, cursor control externally. Uh, these were all things that you, the computers did not have before, not commercial computers and personal computers. You know, they, they were in the lab and Xerox had a very high priced uh, computer that used that, ver you know, uh, that mode of computing. But uh, I w recognized right away, it turned out to be correct, that this was a big inflection point for computers and it's going to make them more mainstream, more popular and more fun. Yeah, yeah. No, I think it, it you did really pick up on that right away, but I think it's like, you, know, you, you seem to also really have a great understanding of like where this would be most impactful. I mean, there was such a consumer revolution that occurred because of these types, because of that device. And it was very much something that, like, I think you had a lot of insight in early on. Yeah, you know, it seems like also with crypto, you, you had a great insight into crypto before even like Bitcoin came about, and um, you put out a book earlier on about that. You know, what did you just think it was like a, a very much privacy, this privacy-focused movement that made sense? Like, what drew you towards crypto initially? Uh, well, when Wired started, uh, I was a freelancer at the time. I was uh, uh, listed as a contributing writer uh, from the first issue. And I wrote the second cover story about these people called cypherpunks. Uh, again, very counterculture kind of thing. Um, and I got the assignment. Kevin Kelly actually suggested I do it. He was the executive editor of Wired at the time. Uh, and he said, you know, we're starting this new magazine. It's going to be like the Rolling Stone of technology. Here's a great story for you to do. It's like the hackers and, you know, and this thing called cryptography that they're doing. And, uh, I thought, well, I don't know about this magazine. What, what's going to happen with that? It sounds a little dicey, but I'll do it because I like Kevin. Um, of course, here I am at Wired 30 years later. But um, <laughs> but uh, I did that story and became fascinated 
with the subject of cryptography and learn the story about how in uh, the late 70s, uh, you know, a group of people uh, took it uh, out of the hands of government, which had this monopoly and uh, tried to prosecute people who would do research in it um, and developed outside of the government bounds uh, a way to do cryptography on a massive scale which, as it turns out, we were going to need when the Internet became popular and when people went online. So uh, it was a political thing, uh, in part, which led me to write about that. And all during the 90s, I wrote about crypto for Wired and, you know, uh, about halfway through, I decided, yeah, I should do a book on this. Um, and in as part of that, you know, besides the privacy angle, I realized the cryptography enables you to do a lot of really cool things uh, digitally online that not only can match some of the things we use in the real world for things like contracts and other things, um, even money, but uh, surpass them with things like smart contracts and and the kinds of things that people you just started talking about a few years ago with the blockchain. So uh, the book pretty explicitly anticipated that stuff, uh, even though the book was now like 22 years old. Yeah. I mean, when you were when you were also diving into this, like, did you think that this would be done like, you know, kind of through the typical tech company way of somebody creating like a Bitcoin currency? Or did you think it would be even like, you know, somebody embracing it in a completely outsider approach to create these types of technologies to take advantage of smart contracts, things like that, hmm. in the way that Bitcoin was done anonymously? Well, there was kind of a struggle going on at that time in the mid to late 90s about what uh, digital cash would look like. That's what they called it then. I wrote a story in for Newsweek in 1995, I think, uh, called The End of Money. And I did one for Wired in 1994 called, you know, eCash. Um, so it was writing about the origins of, of digital currency. Uh, and there's a question of whether it would be anonymous or not. Uh, you know, whether it would be something that preserved people's privacy or gave it up. Um, I didn't really anticipate mainly because it's such a stupid thing to have, that the currencies themselves would become uh, objects of speculation, right? You know, that yeah. you know, that people would, you know, buy these digital currencies, you know, as an investment tool, you know, the investment, you know, to see whether they would uh, go up in price and, you know, you'd hold it and, you know, going to be worth more. Um, and again, you know, that's kind of like a dumb use for it, which I think has really hampered its use, uh, its adoption, because uh, if you know that uh, spending some digital currency uh, might lead you 10 years later to say, oh, I can't believe I bought a pizza and it's now worth $20,000, uh, <laughs> uh, you're less likely to spend it, something like that. Um, and same with NFTs, right? I mean, you're less likely to appreciate just the coolness of an NFT if you see it as an investment vehicle to say, well, if I buy this and hold it, um, it might be worth many, many more times what I'm spending for. It. Yeah. Yeah, there is that kind of tie in in the industry for sure. But I think the value of what it provides as a collectible you know, or even the, the transactional value, it's just it, that's the aspect to focus on. It doesn't get focused on enough. I totally agree. Yeah. Yeah. So 
Um, you know, in terms of like writing a story and creating a journalistic piece, you've written so many different types of stories about so many different types of products. You know, what really like are some of the initial steps and how do you structure a story to make it have the most amount of reach and most amount of, of interest to the, the widest audiences on a particular topic? Like what are some things that go into that to do it well? Well, I, I really believe uh, that uh, long form story in particular uh, has to have a strong narrative. There's got to be a reason to drive the reader to go from paragraph to paragraph. And, uh, you know, why are we have great editors that really reinforce that structure, which, you know, it's kind of second nature to me now. I've written hundreds of these, of these stories. But uh, what, so what you do when you research uh, is you approach your subject uh, once you determine that, gee, I think this is pretty interesting. This could be a story. Then to kind of go with an open mind because uh, the reality of what you find when you do reporting is always, without exception, more interesting than any preconception you might have about what the story might look like, right? You know, when you just think in terms of saying, you know, oh, what would a story be, you know, if I were writing a screenplay or, you know, or, or something like that, uh, you would think formulaic, right? But real life is much more interesting. It's got twists and turns. So you just keep your eyes and ears open when you're reporting and you try to divine what that story is, what that narrative is uh, beneath all the information you're accumulating. And as you listen to people and, you know, and learn surprising stuff, um, just like dipping, you know, like an old style photograph into developing fluid, you know, it becomes become clear, right? You know, you, you see the outlines of here's your story. Here's the story I want to tell. Um, so it's important. You know, it's hard to do it if you're writing a story in a couple days, like sometimes you have to do it Newsweek. But at Wired, I have the luxury sometimes to take months for a story. Um, I'll work on several at once where uh, those lines become clear and you're able to write the story and I can unfold it uh, with all the novel things you've learned uh, during the course of research. Mm -hmm. And how different is it, Stephen, for creating a book? Uh, is it is it this, a similar process to be able to create, to get to understand the content, to get, research it, to be open-minded like that? But how about when you're structuring your story and, and trying to entice the reader? How much different is it? Well, it's even more important to have an open mind during a book because what you're doing is you're diving and really trying to become the world's expert on that subject, right? So when I did my book about Google, um, I spent years talking to hundreds of people at Google and got the view from Google um, as best you could possibly have without working there, right? And in some <laughs> aspects, a better view because I was able to talk to anyone. You know, uh, there's the corporate bounds and silos didn't apply to me, you know, and I could talk to Larry and Sergey, and I could also talk to some engineer somewhere. And, uh, so they gave me unbelievable access. And uh, I was able to figure out, you know, this what this is company is really about. And I was able to identify to me sort of the crucible of Google, which at the time was their experience in China, where their morals um, and their came uh, um, to be tested you know, can, whether they were going to determine whether they were going to be evil or not. Uh, and wound up spending a lot of time in China uh, documenting that. So, uh, which is something I didn't think when I started. When I wrote about Facebook, 
uh, I started researching that book in the end of the summer of 2016. A few months later, the election came and the whole narrative changed uh, as a lot of fingers pointed at Facebook as, well, that's why Trump got elected. That's, you know, you screwed things up. You took people's privacy and the company was under unbelievable scrutiny at the time that I was uh, talking to all the employees there and researching it, talking to Mark Zuckerberg, I think nine times during the course of, this, of the book. Um, and was a little worried for a while that they throw me out. But uh, I guess by that point, they figured I knew too much anyway. So why not just go with it? Um, uh, so, you know, that was a big change that I rolled with. Just on a step on a bit of a separate topic to so the discovery of Einstein's brain. You know, you know, you, you kind of, you figured out where it was, you had to track it down. And it, it's interesting because it kind of became this majorly culturally significant thing to have Einstein's brain, to study his brain. You know, why do you think it wasn't, you know, there wasn't any kind of focus on even retrieving it before you found it. Uh, it didn't seem like there was that much substantial interest in it. And then all of a sudden we, we found it and that, then there was all this renewed interest. Why do you think that kind of happened? Well, you know, I, people kind of forgot, most people for, forgot, you know, uh, if they knew it to begin with, that Einstein's brain was removed after he died, you know. And uh, my editor came across a line in a biography of Einstein just saying the brain was removed. And he kind of wondered, it was over 20 years since that happened. You know, which is what happened there? You know, what studies came of it? And he tried to find some scientific study or something, and he found nothing about it and then gave me the assignment to go find Einstein's brain. I figured out who had the brain. It was the pathologist who removed it from Einstein's head in 1955. Um, he had dropped off the map. So it really became a search for him in the pre-Google days. Uh, and I eventually located him. At first, he denied he had the brain. But then I said, well, I'm going to go visit you. And uh, after a long back and forth, it turned out he did have the brain. And he showed me the brain. And I wrote about it. It became international news. People were camped out on his lawn. Johnny Carson <laughs> made a joke about it. Uh, and some scientists read about it and asked him for pieces of the brain so they could study it. Um, but also, also became a big cultural thing. There are books called Einstein's brain plays, um, uh, songs, everything, you know, and it became a huge thing. Yeah. So, so after this, it was kind of found in everything. I mean, so was, was your goal to really write up, you, to write up on it, et cetera, but like, were there other goals you kind of had in seeing like, and seeing, that maybe the brain go to be studied in different places, seeing what, what was possible. Like, were you kind of like trying to you know push for it to be in those areas? Like, what did you want to do with, with, with it basically? Well, I mean, in the short term, that was a, like a one-off. I just did the story and, mm -hmm. uh, and, and it ran and, you know, about, about, uh, maybe, uh, some years later, you know, uh, probably, uh, almost 20 years later, uh, one of the things published about it uh, came out uh, a significant study by one of the top brain researchers. I was at Newsweek then and wrote an article about it. But I think for me, the lasting effect of that was besides having a cool story to tell at dinner, uh, I, it led me to think about, gee, Einstein's brain, which really didn't have significant 
differences from a quote normal brain. Um, people did find you know some anomalies you know in years to come, but nothing that really would explain Einstein. But it made me wonder what made Einstein Einstein, right? You know, what, why does that brain come up with things that no other brain came up with? And I would later ask the same question about Steve Jobs, who was a really, you know, uniquely driven person and with, you know, a very uh, prodigious and specific talents. Well, and, you know, also just this drive and this, you know, um, focus that very few people had. And I don't know what made Steve Jobs Steve Jobs, right? So that's something that's uh, puzzled me and I, something I work to get to the bottom of a, a lot when I write a story is trying to understand some of these extraordinary people I write about and really try to figure it out in the context of that bigger question of what makes us us. And this is a question now that really comes to the fore as I write and ponder artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just the last question that I have, Stephen. So with seeing the developments of ChatGPT and OpenAI, you know, you covered Google quite uh, quite intensely with uh, in the Plex book. You, you interviewed hundreds of people. You spent years on it, um, et cetera. I mean, do you think that this the ChatGPT is really the future of search and the way we interact with the web, or do you think it's like kind of building out its own category? Um, a little of both. I think uh, we're in a period of flux. Um, as we're trying to figure out how to use this technology. Um, right now, it isn't necessarily the most effective way to do searches. You know, for one thing, you can't trust what it says. So it's not too good if you're looking for an answer to something and it makes something up. Uh, you can't take that to the bank. I couldn't put it in a story uh, uh, and trust that it, it was true. Um, but I think uh, it's a bigger question. I mean, what else is generative AI going to replace? And what's going to be built on top of generative AI? Um, and at some point, we're going to turn over a lot of what we do to uh, AI, where AI is going to be talking to AI and we're going to be spectators. So uh, that'll be uncomfortable. Really, the question of whether ChatGPT could ultimately replace search um, is something that leads to a, a bigger question. Right now, in the short term, uh, no, it can't because, for one thing, it makes things up. And when you search for something, you like to know the actual true answer to things. You, know, you don't like to, to have facts that uh, it just fabricated. Uh, also, uh, sometimes when you search, you're looking for a, a lot of alternatives rather than one straight answer there. But I do think that uh, it's impressive ability to take a huge amount of information and boil it down to something coherent um, uh, in just plain natural language uh, indicates that something really remarkable is going on here. It blows the Turing test out of the water, you know, just on a minute to minute basis. And I think much bigger than whether we'll search with it is how much of this is going to affect everything we do in our lives, right? And uh, we're all going to have these assistants that use AI. And increasingly, the assistants are going to be talking to other assistants. We're going to be spectators in uh, discourse between AI, 
different AIs talking to each other. Uh, and that's a weird place for humanity to be. Yeah. Well, Stephen, I appreciate you coming on. I think you, you have, you know, really great insights into the tech field. You, you've spent probably some of the most time of anybody in the world studying this space, being immersed with the creators of, of these products in this space, the products themselves. Um, and I think it provides really great insight um, into into you know what into various different fields and into your coverage of what your of these different topics. Uh, but you know people can find your work on Wired.com. You put out articles you know consistently in-depth articles, long stories, um, and they're fascinating. So I hope that people mm -hmm. do check them out. And I appreciate yeah, I you coming on. I hope when they uh, you know if uh, I do a, a weekly newsletter called Plain Text that goes out to all Wired subscribers and. There's an, an introductory rate of like five or ten dollars for a year, which gives you not only my newsletter, but all of Wired online and the print magazine. So uh, that can't be beat.